Hello everyone and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. Just a quick intro because once again I was talking to my guest and got going and didn't actually introduce him or the topic. So my guest in this week's episode is Avi Khalil and I'm talking to Avi about Star Trek and how the show Star Trek in its many iterations but we especially focus on the original series The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine embodies everyday anarchism. What's so fascinating is that I was working on an episode on this topic and never got around to writing it. Avi heard me talking on the Seriously Wrong podcast about everyday anarchism and then wrote a blog post about everyday anarchism as a good way to understand Star Trek. So of course I had to have him on the show so that we could talk about how he and I seem to have created the same idea independently. It's a really, really fun conversation coming up after the music. Just introduce yourself. Okay, great. Uh, hi, my name's Avi. I'm an anthropologist. I'm based in England at the moment. And I was listening to a podcast that Graham was on, Seriously Wrong. And it was explaining everyday anarchism. And as I was listening to it, I was like, this makes sense of Star Trek. And I've watched Star Trek since I was a kid with my dad. And I've, I think I've watched every episode of every series uh, that's ever been made. So I was wow. like... That, that far surpasses me. I've seen every episode of the original series, The Next Generation, the animated series, and Deep Space Nine. And then Voyager, I'm 39 now. Voyager was the one that was on like in my mid to late teen years and Voyager was where I was where I got off it just there was so like oh the holodeck malfunctions again I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't take it well it's because I grew up in a in a in a caravan and then when we moved into a house we we didn't have uh my parents didn't allow us to have tv so we just had recorded VHS uh. and there was like bible stuff star trek and anthropological documentaries so, <laughs> <laughs> oh that's fascinating star trek there were no anthropological documentaries in my house but the bible and star trek were two were two very important very important documents in my in my childhood it's amazing how generational star trek is and it remains to be seen if anyone is getting into this new era uh, Discovery, Picard, Strange New Worlds. I think Lower Decks is the fourth one. Like there's there's a new era of Star Trek, and as near as I can tell, no one is watching it unless they've already been invested in Star Trek. The original series and the Next Generation widely captured people who had, you know, obviously in the original series they hadn't heard of Star Trek. But people, it was, you know, there was just energy. It's hard to explain to my students that just in like 1993, if you were talking to someone, you could assume that they knew who Captain Picard was <laughs> and definitely that they knew who Kirk and Spock were beyond just, you know, names. And Star Trek is not is not that in anymore and maybe will never be again. And that's I mean, that's fine. I'm, I'm not mourning it, but it yeah, is yeah. a fascinating thing. Well, that was the, it was after listening to that episode of you, I happened to put on, um, 
I'm not like a super fan of the current ones either, but as you say, I bought into it, so it's something to pass the time. And I was watching uh, one of the new iterations, Stranger New, Strange New Worlds, which is based before the original series and is trying to appeal to that vibe, essentially, I would say. And it was just in there where they do a, a kind of uh, more simplistic version, essentially, of the original series um, um, that I then suddenly saw this connection to to the way that you explained everyday anarchism yeah okay that's a great place let, let me jump in and, and set some groundwork and tell the listeners where i'm coming from and then from there we can get to your idea so the first thing to say is there's a problem with star trek or th there's a problem to be solved in that it seems like everyone likes it i mean it has a huge mass appeal beyond so many other things in the world and yet, it's not obvious why everyone likes it. If you look at Disney movies or Marvel superheroes, it's sort of obvious why they have become so popular. Star Trek is both, you know, kind of aesthetically, definitely aesthetically inferior to those things, especially the original series, but uh, also everything up until the most recent stuff. Everything looks like cardboard. It doesn't look like cardboard. Everything is made of cardboard, and you can tell it's cardboard People spend a lot of the time talking. There's there's committee meetings. You know, there's lots of committee meetings. So it doesn't have the obvious appeal of the aesthetics of so many other world-bestriding colossuses of, uh, what do they call it, intellectual property. But the real problem that I want to identify, and this comes from Graeber, as so much of my stuff does, is like left-wingers and right-wingers both like Star Trek. And Graeber says it's quite obvious. On the one hand, this is a completely communistic society in which, you know, the progressives have taken control and fixed everything. Every socialist and, and democratic socialist and progressive should like it. And it's also a fully armed military organization running the entire galaxy. So every right wing fantasy, you know, you have both fantasies smashed together. It doesn't work intellectually or ideolo ideologically, or at least it shouldn't work. And yet everyone loves it. And my theory is that it's because actually the deep beating heart of Star Trek lying underneath both of these pseudo ideologies, the, the kind of bureaucratic communist one and the, and the bureaucratic military one, is this concept that I have called everyday anarchism. And I outlined a whole episode about what we really like about Star Trek is everyday anarchism. And I never made it. I didn't have time. And then you sent me this blog post you had written that it was like my thoughts on the page that I had never had the time or the courage to get out there. And it was just, it was thrilling, Avi. It was, it was thrilling for me. Thanks. I, I appreciate that. Um, I don't know if I'm, if I might, uh, I agree with you, but I think I I might I would I think your interpretation actually takes uh how you'd pitch that Graeber understood it. I would think it takes it a significant bit further because in thinking about after you replied to my blog post and thinking about it and kind of seeing those things that are always in front of your nose until you start thinking about them <laughs> is that smashing of two of two kind of systems to me the dynamic then 
within Star Trek, and maybe that's just because of today, there are too many things that reflect what I'm about to say. Um, is that it's very neoliberal. It's almost pre-neoliberal in the way that it works. And then the entire series is about uh, exactly what the anthropologist Margaret Mead said about, you know, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. That's essentially, you have the Enterprise, which is a small group of people on one ship within this mega fleet. And they're actually saving the Federation from itself every <laughs> other episode. Uh, and it's just like, okay, so this is the... the, the that that's the appeal of realizing uh a feeling that or maybe just even sensing it somehow i'm not sure but um well let me let me just jump right in and say i completely agree with you when graber says you know it's got this fascistic overtones and it's also got these communistic undertones and that appeals to everyone i would say like so far so good but that doesn't actually capture the he's he's taken a quick first pass at how Star Trek can be so appealing to so many groups of people, and he has identified what I would say is a a, a, a flaw or a dialectical opposition at the heart of the show. But he hasn't worked through. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't try. I mean, it's like he, a he hasn't watched as many episodes as us. <laughs> I, I think. <laughs> I think that I have no doubt, Avi, that he has that he did not watch all the episodes of Star Trek that we have watched, and so he just you know he throws this out there, and it was on reflecting, trying to solve this. He poses the problem, he doesn't offer a solution, and I think it's this, yeah. Even though there's both this communistic side and this militaristic side, it's actually just when it comes right down to it, after everyone gives their speeches and says what the values of the Federation are and the rules and the laws, Kirk or Picard or Cisco or above all Spock just does the right thing in defiance of the rules and it works out and you get, and you get a happy ending. And the, the supposedly bureaucratic strictures that are binding these people are shown to be every bit as solid as the cardboard sets, which is to say not solid at all and they will get torn up every episode yeah exactly um something else i noticed so i thought i'd go back and watch the very first episode before uh having this chat with you which is even pre-kirk uh yeah just <laughs> one episode without him um and then watched a bunch of rest and it repeated the same pattern and i immediately realized in that in sense of constructing that both uh, bureaucratic communism and and uh, fascistic element that you put the the kind of infrastructure and technologies are really beautiful metaphors so you immediately have the the system that reduces you into an aggregate of particles and then moves you to <laughs> a different place which is like a perfectly uh, expressed idea of neoliberalism which is just everything can be reduced to individual kind of uh, uniform particles with no particular identity and can be shifted over uh, to somewhere else through some kind of digital uh, transfer process and I was like this, the, the entire infrastructure is built on that and even in that first episode the very first conversation that happens 
is between the doctor and the captain. And the doctor goes, I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm going to be your bartender. And I'm going to give you a drink. And he breaks the rule straight away. He's like, we, we can't have a real conversation in this bureaucracy. We're, I'm never going to get to your your issues. Uh, so they crack open a drink, have a drink together. And then the, the captain at this point, it's Captain Pike. is just, he's just like, I just can't take it anymore. I'm having to, to make these absurd decisions between do five people die or a hundred people die? You know, the stupid trolley problem. Uh and as he himself articulates it, he's like, this is an absolutely absurd uh, situation because I can always see a third or a fourth way to solve the problem. And then throughout the rest of Star Trek, you see, you know, the one I mentioned before, the the, the maneuver. Each captain somehow has a special maneuver. Like there's the Kobayashi Maru one that Kirk has. And, and it's per, it's designed that you can't win. So what does Kirk do? He just cheats. He goes and reprograms the exercise before <laughs> having to do it. And it's like, there are other ways out. And then I started thinking about that silly trolley problem. And it's like, it never, you're never allowed in these, these, these absurd philosophical experiments to say, well, can you have a conversation with anyone else uh, within this, with this situation <laughs> and maybe come up with some No, you, you can't do that. You just have to pick between the bureaucratic options. Um, anyway, then so then I realised uh, through some of the examples you mentioned about everyday anarchism is what is keeping, uh, what is helping people to survive are essentially all of these informal agreements and actions that are happening in the cracks. Um, otherwise, the kind of federation, which which is the nicest term that they that they use because everything else is frontiers. Yeah. Boldly where men go and it's like, oh, Federation, that's a nice one. <laughs> it's the only thing that keeps it together. In this, whatever this is that's working well, even if it's a terrible hierarchical authoritarian thing, somewhere down there, you've got anarchism animating it. And you can do this for the Roman Empire and the, and the Byzantine Empire and fortune 500 corporations and there's probably also going to be a totally opposed like managerial literature that explains that why the roman empire worked is because of strong hierarchies and patriarchal values or something but actually if you look at the roman empire it worked because lots of people not everyone but lots of people within the roman empire considered themselves roman and were in solidarity with one another and and pulled in the same direction and it worked doesn't mean they weren't um, torturing people, enslaving people, murdering people outside of their solidarity, but within their kind of anarcho-communistic solidarity, it it worked, and they kept the emperors. I'm re-listening to Mike Duncan's series on the Roman Empire. The every emperor shows up and is like, "I know what went wrong, and I'm going to set up a new set of rules that will last forever." to assure that the crisis that led to me becoming the emperor never happens again. And those rules, like if they last 20 years, it's astonishing. The rules fall apart, but the Roman Empire endures. And it's because it's this actually this other thing. And I think that's what's happening in, in Star Trek. Would you say, you're making me think now. So um, a friend of mine in London used to attend gentlemen's clubs. Um, and so... I went along with him in my early 20s as his guest. Um, 
and you know just pay attention to how it's working and what's going on and being surprised at some of the people there you're like wow okay so you're in charge of the entire franchising of the railway network or <laughs> this type of uh it was, i mean it was literally the what you call the fat controller from from thomas the tank engine but um there was all these kind of people firstly all of the drinks and food is like free or subsidized right um it's really spacious in one of the most cramped parts of london and you know the conversations there's like a flip between a conversation where we don't talk business but the entire conversation is a is like basically the business conversation without the formalities that they might engage with in an email conversation or around a business table so it's just very informal conversation about how you're going to make this decision and when i saw that i was like these people really kind of i guess what that's why i'm wondering would that be a kind of everyday anarchism because when i saw that solidarity at that time i didn't have this language of everyday anarchism that you've given me um i used to think when i'd go back and do activism uh university on campus and think about our groups and how we would get along and the kind of face-to-face socializing and i was like some i was like often i was like the people in that gentleman's club sometimes were better yeah. at, at doing that internal <laughs> solidarity and i was like man we need to get better at this <laughs> i yeah i would i would absolutely describe that as as everyday anarchism and in some ways it's so much easier to be an everyday anarchist when you're very comfortable um because you know which again is a part of star trek they're all comfortable no one has to worry that they're going to starve and we'll get to the meritocracy in a bit. No one has to worry that they're going to get fired. Um, the obvious example as an American is to think about the United States Senate, which at various times, you know, they've like come to blows with one another, especially leading up um, to the U.S. Civil War. But up until relatively recently, everyone in the Senate was more or less friendly and palled around with everyone else and much of the work of the u.s government was done you know it we the senate passed legislation for hundreds of years and it sort of stopped doing that and it was because the senators were sort of all in solidarity with one another and they might represent people who hate each other and they might sort of publicly hate each other but then they would sit in a meeting and they would be like yeah tom i really need this bill and tom would be like okay fine, Henry, as long as I get this. And then they would shake and then they would go have a drink. And so there was sort of everyday anarchism animating the Senate. And of course, those bills they were passing might have been the expansion of slavery, right? Like completely incompatible with the idea of anarchism. But the institution itself worked because it had this ethos of anarchism. And now that technocracy has come in and everything has to fit together perfectly logically, the Senate doesn't work anymore because the Senate was built on the idea that the elite people could constantly break the rules for themselves and also be friends with their enemies and be in solidarity with them. And now that you have the demand to not do those things, the Senate as a body has ceased to pass legislation because it was only anarchism that let the Senate pass legislation. Because that was related to that, not in quite the same way um but engaging 
uh, as a member of IWW as a wobbly um, in a number of different work disputes and different campaigns um, uh, like learning taking a long time to learn all of the different rights and legal instruments and what's on our side and this is definitely an important slab of of uh, important pathway but there was kind of a, an, always an irony i mean it's just happened in the last six months where essentially me and my colleagues would become very articulate and understand what was actually the regulations in place and then uh managed to negotiate something and then by the time you had another conversation they entirely changed the goalposts or were just like well what are you going to do about that because uh, then you actually need a kind of powerful juggernaut uh to compete with that and i was just like this is so the laws apply to me but they kind of don't apply to you yeah uh which is frustrating yeah, the flip side is, and this is something Graver writes about in, I think, in the Democracy Project when he's writing about Occupy Wall Street, is that the first thing the cops do when they're negotiating is they try and find some negotiators so that if they've got some spokespeople in the camp, the cops will try and become in solidarity with those people. And then when the spokesperson goes back to the camp, the spokesperson who has just had this kind of friendly clubby experience with a bunch of police captains it's like guys you know i mean we really gotta we gotta help these guys out you know we're all, we're all in this together because if you if you deploy this form of solidarity in in service of hierarchy and oppression it makes hierarchy and oppression so much more effective i mean now that you say it, it's it kind of breaks out in i don't going to specify the specific campaign because we're meant to be co-producing co the answer with the institution in charge of of uh, a key ser service of the government in this region um, but in this first meeting where we managed to get loads of community members together uh, to have a conversation about what where we were at in comparison to the people who have the power and are paid to do the job <laughs> um, a lot uh to see you know where we were all at and very quickly in the meeting they fixated on me because i was first i think i was the only guy but i will i'm also an academic with a title right. um and i specifically to get their attention i had to actually use that to maneuver that and then they were and i was like why are you asking me about this you've got to ask this to everyone um but yeah it's i see what you mean about suddenly trying to kind of isolate the person that you think can talk on your basically agree with you in some sense yeah and then you formed a little club yeah well i don't want to be in that club <laughs> I know. that's i mean that's graver's point exactly is it's a it's a trick you know and the u.s military and all these institutions they're clubs like that um this has been a pleasure but let's let's talk more about uh about star trek um so I want, can you just elaborate on the, like the neoliberalism of it all? Because that is, you know, actually Mike Duncan, the podcaster about Roman history, who I mentioned, I was chatting with him on an episode and I mentioned Star Trek as like a thing that I like and can show some of these ideals. And he just laughed and was like, come on, that's just neoliberal imperialism. And it, 
and it, it, it obviously my claim is it both is and isn't. So let's see if we can if we can get there. Right. So I think coming back to the idea of a first pass and a second pass, and that is and drives why it's both fascinating and why I have a love hate relationship with it mm. is perhaps for any Trekkies and you're like yourself, the moment where humankind uh, suddenly escapes from all of its wars and horrors is where essentially an anarchist rocket engineer designs a rocket that can go warp speed uh, out of a bunch of rubbish uh, with his like rapscallion band of people. Yeah, and he that... is. I hadn't. I had never made that connection, Avi. That's true. So this is in the movie Star Trek: First Contact. Yeah, the guy's not part of any organization. It's not military. It's not bureaucratic. They really are like living on a scientific post-apocalyptic commune. Yeah, and yeah. they're the ones who make the greatest scientific discovery <laughs> in history. Oh, this is so much fun. And they're also like I, I remember thinking about like they're the most. The only like really dirtily shabby, like very <laughs> caricature, like oh yeah, of course people without civilization. They're just uh, whereas they're actually just I don't know fun free people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then what's the first thing that happens as soon as they invent warp uh, speed is that the Vulcans turn up, and the Vulcans are like the the perfect example of everything needs to be in order. No emotions, no mess. Uh, we need to have everything done by the book. So they are like the, they are what the Federation then becomes because the Vulcans mentor humanity into making this Federation with them. Uh, and we all love Spock because Spock is, is represents both. He's half human, half Vulcan, and he's constantly trying to deal with this. Uh, I've got my, my like, hardcore social order suppress my emotions but every time i don't i actually end up doing something really cool and helping people um so that's to me in the kind of their origin story and funny enough that goes along with what uh wengro and graber bring up in their dawn uh book about stages and this idea that stages are technologically driven mm. um rather than actually looking at what's the social relations and organizations of the different meeting species here and how they blend that is actually implicit within star trek but it puts at the forefront the technological aspect um which uh you know because that represents that ideology so i think in the first pass you only see that but in the second pass you start to see something else um and that would bring to another last point i would have on this which is um yeah i was going to bring up the borg but maybe i'll bring that up later oh yeah we absolutely have to talk <laughs> about the borg but that's yeah so i th I think that's a great start and i want to say there's a, a a book i quite like although obviously in some ways i'm opposed to it it's a quite neoliberal book called uh treconomics by manu sadia and he argues that in the original series, and I don't think this is quite true, but I think it's completely true in the first pass reading. In the original series, everything is kind of chaotic, like not just that Captain Kirk is chaotic, but actually I'm not even sure if they use the phrase Federation in the first series, or maybe they use it once and they call it, they sometimes say Starfleet, and they sometimes say mm -hmm. like the organized worlds, like they haven't even, it, it was a 60s TV show that was coming out once a week, 
They haven't figured out the world, but especially the characters are very, very human. Um, Spock is sort of an outlier. And uh, Sadia's argument is in the next generation, every character, every character who's on the Enterprise is supposed to, in some ways, have adopted this kind of Spockian mode. So if you have the classic, there's a classic Freudian explanation for the the triumvirate in the original series. There's the the ego, the swaggering ego of Kirk, and then there's the pure id, not in a negative way, but emotionally of the doctor. You know, Spock is the, the super ego always saying like, oh, well, this is logical. And Bone says, my God, Spock, you're talking about people's lives. Like he's he's just feeling it, you know? And in the next generation, at least on the surface, there's been like a complete neoliberal imagination and every main member of the Enterprise has that kind of Spock mode. No one ever says, my God, have you thought um, about the emotions of it? Even the ship's counselor is very, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to resonate and say they, they then introduce a counselor. They professionalize yes. and order that that need for, for the for the. <laughs> and, and her job is sort of to work through their emotions so they don't so they don't feel them anymore. She's like an anti-emotional counselor. It's very professional and, and neoliberal. Like, please, please purge your emotions so you can be a Vulcan. We must all be Vulcans. And the, the Kirk character, the Kirk analog is no longer in charge of the ship because you couldn't have a chaos agent in charge of the ship. It's this guy named Commander Riker and he's, you know, big and he has a beard, but he's every bit as most of the time, except when he falls in love with an alien or whatever, but he still never breaks any Federation rules whenever he fucks any of these aliens. Most of the time, he's more straight-laced and narrow-minded than Spock is. It's like there's been a complete mm. neoliberalization and professionalization of of everything, at least on the surface. Yeah, yeah. Well, also on the surface, the bridge. I always find the bridge in, in The Next Generation amazing because it's like a sofa lounge. <laughs> like this is the most this is i don't is, is it like a an office or is it like a you know a, a lounge in a bank or like i, I don't get it like it, it, what's what's what are you what's going on with this thing no, it does, it, i think lounge in a bank is is perfect because the chairs look kind of comfortable and padded but they don't look like you would have them at your at your home it's a very no, no. impersonal space yeah yeah exactly that's like it's impersonal but comfy and then there's just loads of screens with numbers like floating about and trying to make magic out of the numbers it's, it's uh, yeah. I was like, <laughs> another another perfect neoliberal metaphor <laughs> we've got all these numbers we've got to do something with them <laughs> but then they exit that room and then they go to a side room with an essentially round roundish table and yeah. then they actually sit around that table and that's where they actually make any decisions because they, like when they're on the bridge, there's the chain of command, got to do this, no one can defy the captain essentially. Uh, <laughs> but then they go and have a, like a little chat and work out in the side room and go, oh, all right, fuck, we should probably do that. And then come back and then all, oh, let's do this. Now you're making me think about it. It's like structured in the in the space in, a, in an interesting way. Yeah. Yeah, no, it abs it absolutely is, and they also go to a bar sometimes, um, although they don't drink real alcohol. I mean, there's all these ways that it's like the show has created this fantasy, this 
hierarchical military fantasy, and then it flees from it constantly. It literally moves to to different rooms. Um, and then you know you you focused on Spock in your blog post, but my focus in the episode I was hoping to record was on Picard, because if you look at Picard's record, and I didn't watch many episodes to prepare for this, he defies Starfleet and the rules and breaks the prime directive as frequently as Kirk does. And if you have these nerd conversations that I have, like, oh, which captain do you like best? People often say like, oh, Picard, Kirk couldn't really have been a captain. He didn't believe in the prime directive. He didn't follow the rules. He was just kind of a joke. And it's like, well, have you ever actually watched any episodes? Because Picard breaks the rule. I mean, the end of season one is that Picard discovers that Starfleet is being run by tiny parasites and all the admirals are evil. <laughs> And he flies in, in and kills all the admirals. Like, that's literally, like, <laughs> the end of the season is the captain goes in open mutiny against Starfleet. And then at the end, they're like, and this was a good mutiny. This is the <laughs> right kind of mutiny. And we're so glad we have the kind of captain who will kill admirals on command because he knows those admirals are actually are actually bad. And it's like, well, how can how can you claim that this is this kind of bureaucracy when our our hero um leader figure does not everyone obeys him except for when they defy him and he never ever listens to anyone else. Like an act, a show actually in which Picard followed the rules and obeyed the prime directive and did everything that the admirals told him to would be so tedious it would be unwatchable yeah, it'll be horrible <laughs> well, even in the picard series the more recent one, which i kind of got lost in the middle of it i didn't understand but by the end uh it kind of has a similar ending where it's uh they've decided some reason to have uh to make all of their ships um centralized through one uh kind of software system rather than and and Picard's like this defeats the whole point of the autonomy of our spaceships yeah. and you're like what so you're just basically talking about like being a pirate captain yeah. <laughs> and so then, of, and then they go back and then they just destroy that that whole centralized I'm like all right mate <laughs> yeah well this is I've I mean I've got a few more ideas but this brings us to the Borg because one of the dangers of Star Trek the next generation if you don't pay attention to how close, uh, how chaotic Picard is, is that the Federation can look like a really, you know, imperialist project in which no one has any choices and all individually has, all individuality has been drained. Again, if you actually watch the episodes, that's not the case. But the political structure, if you like described it in an encyclopedia article, would make it sound mm. like there's no individuality mm. and it's just endless neoliberal corporate tentacles spreading throughout the galaxy and making everything the same. And so my theory is they create the Borg precisely to, you know, as kind of like pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Look over there. This is, this is what a, an, an endlessly spreading, controlling capitalist communism would look like. Ours is totally fine. And theirs is, is bad. Like the Borg is a deliberate foil I think to kind of mm. throw what the Federation is actually like, or kind of to hide what the Federation is, is actually like, if that makes sense. That was pretty unformed, but just no, no, I gave because I've always tried to work out there's a quandary with the, 
with the kind of development of the Borg across series for me, because they start out as an interesting thought experiment where um, they are, are decentralized, but mm. their concept of decentralization is essentially to be uniform. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the idea of assimilation, right? So it is about the aggregate again, about all of these kind of identical homogenous goo. And they're scary because they don't have a kind of central nervous system that one little team of people can go and deal with. Um, and then they keep evolving. And then there's really interesting episodes where this goo actually starts to separate and realize that maybe uh, being homogenous is quite boring. <laughs> and then suddenly the whole thing switches when that starts getting interesting and then they insert a queen. Yeah. And you're like, well, where did that... It, the, but then I guess that would make sense with what you're saying is then the reason for the Borg's introduction has broken down so they need to reassert it by putting uh, putting a kind of centerpiece into it again. Yeah, I think... I mean, I think it's clear in one way that like the first pass reading is this is an example of why capitalism is good and why Soviet style communism is bad. Like the Borg is, is the Soviets. And if you can take someone away from their uh, Soviet indoctrination, they can be good and, and, and happy. That's kind of how it begins. But then by the time they bring the Borg in, it's clear that the enemy is, sorry, by, by the time they bring the queen in, it's good. The enemy is no longer, the USSR, this is the late nineties. Mm. We're not, you know, the, the Western world is no longer quivering in fear of, of capitalism. So dictator over some poor people. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly my reading. Yeah. How boring. Yeah. I, know. <laughs> I was enjoying the bit. There was like that brief window when the ball became something else that didn't conform to any of that, but that were, they were like self autonomous communities that were, in their own planet so they were going obviously in their own directions they still communicated occasionally with the uh with the hive mind but they mainly just got on with their own life which which one would expect someone to do on a different planet with different weather and so on and so forth um yeah well that's another thing that i think the borg is trying to hide is that obviously the goal of the federation is to make everyone end up exactly the same except with maybe like you have in the same way that we have like oh everyone should be exactly the same but we can have different kinds of national cu cuisines and that's like you know in america that's like you have to have the exact same test scores as everyone else and the exact same house and the exact same life and your english has to be identical to everyone else but uh, and you have to wear the same clothes as everyone else probably but you are allowed to eat something different you know, and maybe you're allowed to speak a different language at home, but don't bring that shit into the workplace. Like that's, mm. that's what they're, uh, uh, that's what they're working towards. It seems to me, the Federation is this assimilationist project. And so the board queen is like, look, look, we're not, we're not that we don't have a dictator. We're not torturing people. We just want everything to work well and be, uh, efficient. That's kind of that's the that's the neoliberal fantasy, but then that that gets that gets uh, challenged again at the, the kind of DS nine is where loads of stuff starts to break down, and I think that's because the writers get to the point where you know 
how can we actually challenge this entire universe that we've that we've made and you, know, you start to get the maquis who are named after essentially the spanish anarchists <laughs> yes uh, and <laughs> then you've got the dominion which are just like a completely absurd like super evil um and then everyone else going why are you trying to colonize us all the time can you just yeah. piss off yeah, the D- Deep Space Nine really it asks the questions that Star Trek has has no answer for, which is you know yeah you've absolutely the Maquis is they're more or less anarchist terrorists of the of the 30s and 40s, and so for them to have be you know more or less the good guys, multiple Federation people end up helping them, and you know Picard makes his speeches about how it's not the right way and uh, sorry, not Picard, Cisco. It's Cisco makes his speeches about how it's not the right way. Actually Picard as well. Picard also has to deal with the Maquis in later seasons of TNG, but you know that deep down, they just want to be out there pirate Maquis captains shooting up the, the bad guys. It's, it's very obvious that that kind of uh, anarchist resistance is very appealing, at least to the people who are making the show. And then of course the big conflict of deep space nine, as you say, precisely is, the Federation shows up at this backwater that has been colonized by space Nazis is what my students call the Cardassians. And they're just like, Hey, we're here to, we're here to free you. We brought all these replicators. So you'll have endless material wealth and you're happy now. Right. And the Bajorans are like, no, Hey, we want revenge on those fuckers. Like we're not ready to just like (laughs) be happy now forever because you brought us food and B, you're absolutely trampling on our way of life, our religion. You've you've taken our most sacred thing and you're turning it into a conduit for commerce and trade and exploration. We we don't want any of this. And obviously, this cuts at the heart of the of the project of the Federation, which is to make everyone the same, except for some cultural bits, maybe on the side. And the Bajorans say, no, our culture is. The oh yeah, because they're, they're not allowed to even wear their their earrings to start with. There's like yes. a whole episode about wearing your cultural <laughs> earring. Why is it my 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 trekkie friend? What does he call the Bajorans? Space Irish, and now they're the Space <laughs> Palestinians. <laughs> like people are just getting fucked over. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 perfect, and you know I, this is something. You know, there's this progressive movement in the United States. So right now in the United States, the way employment law works is your employer can fire you if you don't dress how your employer dictates. So things like earrings and hair and everything, that's just like you can lose your job if you are if you're wearing the wrong earrings. And this has mostly died out. But for a while, there was, in in my opinion, just a hopelessly misguided uh, attempt to make cultural exceptions like if you can prove that you have an afro because of your afro-american uh identity or if you're wearing certain earrings because it's part of your religious identity then you can't be fired and so then you have to take your you know your sacred beliefs to a, a lawyer and say like please turn my sacred beliefs into an exception to this rule instead of just the obvious solution which is don't let the fucking assholes fire people because they're wearing earrings like this seems to me an obvious solution but the neoliberal american solution was 
let's figure out, let's adjudicate people's various cultural claims. And if they can prove that it's truly part of their identity, they're allowed to wear it. But if you just like have tattoos on your arms, you can be fired. Unless I guess you can prove that they're, you know, religiously significant tattoos. And then those are, those are allowed. That, that um, ties back into probably the single paper that affected me most um, written by David Graeber, which was a conversation with uh, another anthropologist, Viviero de Castro, or a debate, however you want to put it. And in there, he unpacks something to do with this philosopher called Bhaskar about critical realism. But grounding it is exactly the issue of uh, kind of category power. So if you're, let's say, uh, a Sikh person and you manage to demonstrate, you manage to create this idea that there's a monolithic group of people called Sikhs and they can wear turbans. So you give power to that category but what you do is you actually give power to the person in that community that controls that category and so anthropologists had this issue because they would go to different places have a conversation and then write as if they were writing you know this is exactly what all the people in Papua New Guinea are like because mm, they went and yeah. talked to basically the power broker um, but then uh, within Graeber's paper he's like there's another extreme to that which is where everything is relativism. So then it's suddenly, oh, well, there is no culture and yeah. there are there is nothing shared. Everything is just essentially uh, subjective and different to each person. And then what he tries to draw out in the middle of that is what we should be studying and paying attention to is what kind of power relations are those categorizations making? So within the example you're giving, you're essentially trying to to create a hierarchy of categories of different cultures so you can control their leaders and reify it. And then, then you get into the problem in the long term where you've created a stuckness, right? So now, yes. now Sikhs or Jews or whatever, they can't change because that's, that's all they can be. And then any side voices, so a little little shout out to a, 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 a campaign or a movement that I really support in the UK called Naamod is uh, essentially British Jews against occupation. And it was very frustrating in the past decade that there's like one spokesperson for the British <laughs> Jewish community who gets to pretend as if it speaks for everyone. And But that is exactly how this logic that you're describing works and this kind of power over categories, give it a little spokesperson. Um, I mean, it even goes into the logic of kind of uh, parliamentary monarchy, which is what we live in. We don't live in democracy in the UK and neither do you guys. You live in republicanism. No. <laughs> but uh, in, in this voting system is like suddenly people speak as if, you know, I speak for England or we're, we're I'm like, Okay, A, you don't speak for England, and B, then people start taking on that trope, like, as if I need to defend England. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? I don't understand this. Yeah, another, I don't know, this pops in my head. Maybe it's irrelevant, but I'll just say it briefly. There's this great controversy of what to do with these so-called Benin bronzes that were stolen from, quote, Nigeria. Mm. Except, you know, Nigeria didn't exist when they were taken 
from that place. And so they're trying, some people are trying to give them back to Nigeria. And my understanding is the most recent decision is they are going to give them back and they're going to give them back to the, the Oba, the, the, the monarch of Nigeria, sort of, who now supposedly has a more or less ceremonial role, but is about to be given personally for his own use. I think he's promised to build a museum or whatever. The priceless, priceless sculptures of, I mean, they're not Nigerian. You can't, I mean, people will say they're Nigerian, but that's accepting the the state boundaries created by the British in the 20th century. And this sense of like, oh, well, let's figure out who the Nigerians are and what the Nigerians want. And their solution was, oh, well, you know, I can solve all this problem. Well, it's Here's like the, the absence, just before going back to, to Star Trek and the Prime Directive. Yes, please, uh, please bring it back to Star Trek. Uh, I've I really enjoyed this talk by, uh, the, I don't know if you call him a philosopher, anyway, intellectual Ashley Mbembe, and his uh, suggestion around those kind of artifacts is that in this case, you can have a, his proposal, um, I can't remember the examples he was using from South Africa or um, were that these kind of artifacts are a collective part of our collective history. So they essentially should become commonly mm-hmm. uh, held artifacts. They can be a host kind of nation that oversees or host people that kind of oversees that and, and make sure it's not being exploited. But this is no longer, you know, doesn't belong in the US. It doesn't belong in Nigeria. It doesn't belong in this place. It essentially should be something that is available to everyone rather than the now uh, Oba or King of, of of Nigeria. And that that's what happens in the Prime Directive in Star Trek. And why the Enterprise understands it's absurd is it goes along and go well, is rooted in the idea of natural stages of of evolution and that you can't interfere. And then in every episode, they realize how absurd that is because like a meteorite comes. It's like, yeah, planets exist in an ecosystem of other planets. Uh, And then they also notice, well, there's power relations on these planets and there's probably sometimes there's fascists or sometimes there's not. And then the Enterprise, as a reasonable group of people suddenly go oh what do we do because all of our rules tell us we have to let this unit category of homogenous people can you know continue on their authorized linear succession through technological stages have they done the agricultural revolution yet Mm, no they don't go maybe these people did something entirely different that makes no sense to you no let's not bother with that and then the star trek crew always end up working out okay, yeah, there's power relations here and we're going to try and work out who actually needs our mutual aid here. Yeah. Uh, and because they're not assholes, they don't uh, end up going, let's just support the fascists because they're conforming to to yeah. what we think should belong there. Yeah. But then they, they get taken back to the Central Federation and they get chastised and told off. But, uh, but th- this is my one question I have for you and I'll raise it at the end of the blog. Does this create a kind of prototype for superheroes in the kind of, okay, so if if there are a group of people who have got some good solidarity, but then they start to become special ones. You see it in a, in a parallel series where it deals with it quite well, one that I know Graeber really liked, Buffy. 
um, <laughs> where they also have this problem of like special people because Spock has that special people element about him as well and 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 Worf as well to some degree but uh, I don't know yeah so um first of all I just want to say briefly we should head towards the end but I do definitely if like the Benin bronzes thing had come up in a Star Trek episode what would have happened is is they would have been arranging to give the bronzes to the Oba and then like while they were doing it some terrorist would have run in and shouted and shot something and they would have beamed off and then they would have learned that it was more complicated than that and then they would have solved it precisely as you say by creating some sort of new institution that shared the bronzes with everyone and they would have told the Oba off and then the Admiral would have told Picard off and Picard would have been like, you know, I must uphold the values of the Federation even when I find it. Dis- and then everyone would have been happy. Like that's exactly how it would have worked. Oh my God. That is a perfect example. <laughs> we need that episode to be made. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I'm not making any episode of Star Trek, sadly. But honestly, Avi, if we, we could, we could make it up. Like we could, if we grab plot points for three or four actually existing episodes, we could just, honestly, you could probably just cut episodes together and make this episode. That's, exactly. That's true. Yeah. All yes. the elements are there. <laughs> um, but otherwise I think you're absolutely right. This is a, this, the, this is fundamentally a meritocratic show. It's so meritocratic that we don't, see i mean in deep space nine cisco visits his father who has a restaurant otherwise the only really normal people i can think of that we we meet maybe Worf's parents i mean there just aren't normal people the one time we spend a decent amount of time back on earth we meet picard's thorovian brother who has refused the 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 world um and is making wine quote in the old ways which is to say like 17th century ways like he's not like an anarcho-primitivist but he seems like an anarcho-primitivist to them and the idea of us going to actually just a regular old city and seeing what a normal person's life is like in the federation the the show like can't imagine like if you want to get like freudian about it that's been repressed i feel like because this is about the special ones this is about the ones who break the rule. They're the winners. And because they have won by following the rules, they've gained the right to break the rules. And any version of back on Earth, I feel like there's so many ways that it could go wrong. It could be like a Lotus Eater situation where everyone is just constantly in the holodeck. That's one of my buddy's theories. Just everyone's having sex in the holodeck constantly and like they think the starfleet people are losers forever leaving the holodeck it could be obviously a, a a stalinist or fascistic terror in which like people occasionally speak up and they say the federation is wrong and they get like mind wiped or something like that um they don't seem to be able to imagine what a world would look like for not the special ones and i think this takes us back to where we started mm. it's like the club you were describing that's quite anarcho-communist on the assumption that everyone there deserves anarcho-communism and it's other people who need to be whipped, who need to be chained, who need to be put into debt, who the rules bind. So basically an underdeveloped sense of how to deal with others. Like yeah. no one ever, like not having learned how to deal with Okay, so then I guess Star Trek is people that essentially have to go and deal with 
others of like a, a extreme, I don't know, fucking space bacteria or whatever that are sentient. They're having an education in 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 engaging with someone that's different from them. Yeah, and but it's different, but precisely as you say, un underdeveloped, an underdeveloped society, and in their terms, because they can't imagine what a fully developed society would would look like, except to be imperializing the universe. Hmm. Did that, did that work? I see. Yeah. I see you thinking. Yeah. No. No. My 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 brain's getting getting slow. I'm 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 just absorbing things uh, a bit slower. Well, we've been doing this for a while. We can we can head towards the end. But I do I do take this to be the big the big remaining question is if if this this worked. But it does seem that it works yeah. for an, a select. Okay. I do have one question that I wrote down. Um, it's like a really annoying question. Okay, great. Uh, I mean, it's to both of us, but uh, I don't have an answer. Um, is so if you have a show and shows are comments on your society, they're not examples of the future. Uh, at least that's the why abide to that philosophy rather than uh, kind of tech head philosophies that this is an example of where you're going. Um, then if, if I was to go against my own philosophy and pretend to be a tech person, then what would, what would a society without that, uh, challenge between this kind of anarcho relationship of everyday anarchism, keeping together a kind of facade, if we get rid of the facade, uh, then the the kind of it's an annoying question. People go, so what replaces the facade, essentially? Uh, and I don't think the whole point is that there isn't one answer to to that facade. But I I still feel like I wanted to ask the question. Uh, I don't know. It's a lot of a lot of mumbling that I've just done around that. Well, well, I don't know if your question is annoying, but I'm. I mean, I'm annoyed. I don't have a. I don't have a good answer. I don't know. Maybe you have to try and answer it first. Sorry. So there, you know, there's the mirror universe in Star Trek, <laughs> which I, I think everyone thought was so shit, but then somehow they brought it back in the later seasons because they didn't understand that it was really shit. Um, so for people who don't know what the mirror universe is, it, it again, it does that kind of step of trying to make the, the Federation seem normal by going, okay, what if everyone was totally self-interested? And yeah, it is completely absurd. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, but so then it's like, well, that's not the, to me, that isn't the, op the kind of uh, different place. They're presenting that as a different place as a kind of fear to me. So what is, Another mirror universe, I, I guess, is what, what I'm going A mirror universe where people do want order. There are, like, Vulcans around, and that's important. Um, but broadly speaking, is the every an everyday anarchism is in the, the, in the major position to the, to the minor position of... Mm. of I, don't, I don't know if it's a good way of framing it, but it's... 
so I have a really short answer that you're not going to like, which is this is Ian M. Banks's series, uh, the culture novels, tries to invert this. The sort of like imperialist colonialism helpfulness is the is the minor position, mm. and then the day to day life is is anarchism. Um, it's it's a flip of the of the two. I don't know if you've read those novels. I, have, I highly read. recommend them. Okay. Um, there's like eleven of them. the The first one, skip the first one. I guess it's a recommendation to everyone as well as Avi. Uh, so the player of games, and in the player of games, actually, this guy who lives in this anarchist society. Um, that's also the most you know. It's an analog for whatever the United States or the Western world. It's the imperialist superpower of the universe, but it doesn't go around imperializing overtly, but it does precisely as you say, the enterprise people do try to nudge other cultures in a useful way to help the people who have less power within those cultures. And this guy, he's, he's a player of games and they find a society that's hopelessly corrupt and authoritarian and autocratic, but the way that the leader keeps his power is um, by by winning a chess type game, and so this bunch of anarchists is like, well, let's just throw one of our guys in there who's really good at this game, and see what happens. They don't go in and you know mm, kill mm, the mm. emperor. No, I'm loving this. I've got to read that because you're now you're now you're making me think, grounding my thoughts in anthropological literature. Uh, around the idea of liminal spaces, ritual spaces, and everyday spaces. Yes. And so there's something in my... I went to... It's the a book called Why We Play, which for anthropologists is really fun because it's full of loads of ethnographic an- anecdotes. But a key message I got from it that then came out in my thesis, which was on hunting and sports and games, uh, was broadly speaking... Uh, you have some kind of societies where your ritual space or your time off, uh, your pastime, your leisure space, uh, these are places where you naturalize the social order of your everyday life. But you can also have societies, at least that's what anthropologists come across, where you actually denaturalize your social order. So it's like, we need to have some rules but we need to be reminded that these yeah. are not natural rules. And so we kind of mock them or have a little play about with them. So everyone is reminded that these are kind of agreements. Um, and that's whenever I'm looking, sometimes you can watch the same, I feel I haven't, that you can watch the same game played in two different societies, but it's doing completely different work. It's like a, an odd. So the one you made me think about chess. It's like you could be playing chess in two different societies, and what the chess game is doing can can be completely the opposite. It could be naturalizing, or it could be denaturalizing. Anyway, that was my thought. Uh, no, I, look, I think that's great, and you know, we've been talking for more than an hour, so I think that's. I mean, that's perfect. I'm going to mention that Wittgenstein talks about this as well, but not pick up that oh, because nice. we don't have time. Um, I really need then, to read that A&M Banks. Uh, yes. 
That so to ev- look great. one, I- I've got a million ideas for kind of bigger series is series is um, that I might do on the show someday and a deep examination of the Ian M. Banks universe, which, you know, some people think is just totally imperialist and fails to live up to the billing that some others of us give it as a, as a successful anarchist society. And then others, I think it's a successful anarchist society. So just listeners, let's just say you'll be hearing more about Ian M. Banks from me at some point in the future. And I'm sure also you'll be hearing more uh, from me about Star Trek at some point in the future. Avi, thank you for (laughs) writing this blog post. Thank you for coming on. Tell, tell the listeners where they can find more from you and then we can sign off. Um, well, I have my half-baked thoughts published on my on my website, which is uh, avikalil.com. Um, otherwise, I tend to put articles on Gods and Radicals, which is a US-based site. Um, so that's where you can check, check stuff out from me. All right. Well, I'll have links to both of those. And uh, this was, you know, we said we wanted to talk and have some fun. I don't know about you, but... I had a lot of fun. It's fun. It's a game. We we got to play this game with Star Trek. It's delightful. Yeah, no, and you've given me so many different. Uh, well, first thing is Ian M. Banks. I've got to go read that. But uh, yeah, just spiraling off different thoughts. It's going to take me a while to digest it all. All right. Well, when you've digested them, let me know, and you can come on back. We can do this again. Thank you very much, Graham. All right. Thank you, Avi. Such a pleasure. Mm-hmm.